All right, good morning. All right, man, people are awake this morning. This is great. Get some call and response. Pastors love that sort of thing. Man, it is good to be here. Here, I'm hoping my voice can hold up here. I thought I was going to dodge the, uh, the Bartlett bug here, but I managed to get, get nailed right at the tail end here. So I'm hoping my voice uh, makes it through mm, this morning. And if I sneak out after church and don't shake your hand, you'll know why. <clears throat> but uh, um, it is good to be here. I mean, it is really good to be in uh, Mark's gospel. Um, good to be digging back into uh, this Amazed by Jesus series. I mean, this is about as good as it gets, right? Getting to look at Jesus and his life, his ministry, uh, the amazing things he said uh, and did, right, right at the center of our faith, the center of what we're doing. And so honestly, it is just a huge treat, huge privilege to be here together doing that. Uh, so thankful for Sebastian last week stepping in uh, to just do a wonderful job setting up the second half of our series in Mark's Gospel. Uh, the first half, which we did over the summer and the fall, really set up the identity of Jesus, who he is. And then the second half really begins to move towards Jesus' journey towards the cross. And Sebastian did a wonderful job showing us that we can't have the kingdom without the cross. We can't have the kingdom of God without uh, the cross. And this announcement by Jesus to his disciples, uh, as we saw last week, totally took them by surprise. In fact, it sent them into a little bit of a tailspin, right? They had signed up for the kingdom of God, like this amazing thing that God was doing, but certainly not the cross. And so things got uh, pretty interesting as Jesus begins to turn his focus towards the cross. And towards the end of the teaching last week, if you were listening, uh, you noticed Jesus closed his teaching on the cross by promising that some who are standing there will see the kingdom of God come with power. So it's interesting. Jesus teaches that you can't have the kingdom without the cross, but the kingdom is imminent. It's coming. Some who are standing in that audience, we're going to see it come in power. So uh, in our text this morning, chapter 9, 2 through 13, we get a preview of the king and his coming kingdom, a preview of coming attractions, if you will. And I don't know about you guys, but as a kid, um, I used to love going to the theaters and, you know, seeing live all of the latest coming attractions. You know, you're, you're watching your favorite movie, but beforehand, I don't get to the movies as much as I used to. But they give you all these amazing trailers of all the latest films. And, you know, I just remember as a kid just sitting there, just be like, whoa, the next big thing on the big screen and just the, the awe and the wonder that kind of gets captured with those, uh, those big previews on the big screen. And, and I still get excited uh, about uh, those coming attractions. Even on the little screen now, I feel like everything's kind of going to streaming these days. Uh, but as you know, I'm you know, a big Lord of the Rings fan, and so when the uh, uh, Rings of Power came out this fall, I was just like, whoa, I was digging into all the teaser trailers. Um, have a little picture here. I mean, I got this picture, I was just like, oh, I'm done. Like, just, I'll just hand you your money here. Just, just, I'm, 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 in. I'm all in. I am so excited. Like, whoa, this is so epic and beautiful and aesthetically pre. It's, a, it's the previews, right? They just hook you. They, they kind of suck you in to the plot line. And maybe Lord of the Rings is not your cup of tea, but, you know, maybe the latest blockbuster, you know, film, Avatar or you know, Top Gun or, 
or some obscure documentary on Netflix. I don't know. Uh, whatever it is that gets you the latest indie film. I know some of you guys have a little more art taste. Um, but, but like we get hooked in, right, by these previews, and we're like, man, I want this, right? Those previews build a sense of anticipation of wonder. We're like, all right, I'm committed. I'm excited. I want what you guys are selling here. It helps us to buy in and uh, to spend our hard-earned cash and time to really take in the story, right? And the theaters know they've really got to sell you these days, right? There's so much, uh, you know, material out there that they've got to do something really compelling to grab your attention, to get you to actually leave the comforts of your home and head out to the big screen to see uh, the big film. And so what I want you to see here in Mark is that here in this pivotal moment, right, the turning point in Jesus' ministry in Mark 8 through 9 The disciples get a preview of the king and his coming kingdom. They get a snapshot, a preview of coming attractions. Up until this point, Jesus and his disciples have been laying low, uh, by and large, staying clear of the religious establishment and the Roman occupiers, right? They've been getting the message out, uh, message of the kingdom of God out, grassroots style, right? In the outlying regions of Galilee and Nazareth, they're you know, Jesus is often out in the wilderness. You know, he's far away from the cities, the establishments. You know, getting the message out, but avoiding all of the major centers of power, all of the major uh, centers of influence. But now, Jesus is headed directly for Jerusalem on a head-on collision with the religious establishment and the Romans. And so he wants his disciples to be crystal clear about who he is There can be no doubt about his identity because what is going to happen in Jerusalem is totally going to rock their faith and totally reshape their entire conception about what it means for him to be the Messiah. So here at the furthest geographical point from Jerusalem on a high mountain, far from the crowds, far from the religious establishment, far from the Romans, Jesus gives his disciples a preview of, of his glory so that they can withstand the intense conflict that's coming. The big idea this morning, again, Jesus gives his disciples a preview of his glory so that they can withstand the intense conflict that is uh, coming. So I want to look at three things this morning here. Uh, preview of Jesus' glory, verses 2 through 8. A preview of Jesus' resurrection in verses 9 through 10. And then a preview of Jesus' Suffering, And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would get a glimpse of Jesus' glory so that we can be sustained in our own discipleship to Jesus uh, today. So would you join me in prayer as we uh, dive into our text this morning? Father, we thank you uh, so much uh, for Jesus. We thank you for the wonder of this transfiguration that we get to look at this morning. And we pray that you would come Uh, and just give us a glimpse of Jesus' glory. We need to hear from you. We need to see you. Uh, We need your spirit to be at work here in our midst and in our lives, God. And so uh, we're desperate for you in this new year to come and do what only you can do. And so would you come this morning by the power of your spirit and speak to your people through your word. So we're going to start this morning by looking at... this preview of Jesus' glory. The disciples have seen a lot of 
crazy things at this, by this point in the ministry. Uh, we've spent, I don't know, 21 weeks looking at Jesus' ministry, right? They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen Jesus heal a paralytic. They've seen Jesus cleanse uh, a leper. They've seen Jesus calm storms. They've seen Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They've seen Jesus feed the 5,000 and the 7,000. They've seen Jesus walk on water. Um, They've seen enough to declare that Jesus is uh, the Messiah, but that's still not enough, right? Apparently, Jesus wants his disciples not simply to affirm that he is the Messiah, to be able to declare that he is the Messiah. He wants them to be able to see and experience his glory. And, And isn't that true for those of us that have been around the church for a while? It's easy for us to get the right answer. If you were to get a quiz on Jesus' divinity, his substitutionary atonement, all of the wonderful things that he's done, you know, many of you, you know, you could score, you could always give the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus, right? He's the answer. You could affirm all these wonderful things about him, uh, but it's not enough, right? We need to see Jesus' glory for ourselves. That's what the disciples needed this morning. So after six days, he takes them up on a high mountain. The language here, um, if you're familiar with your Bible, is reminiscent of God's glory touching down on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. In that incredible moment where God meets with his people, gives them the law, shows up in just a cloud of glory and splendor and awe. And it's, a, it's the great shock and awe moment in the Old Testament. In that account, Moses waits six days, similar to the disciples, this mention of six days here. Moses waits six days and then climbs up on the mountain into the cloud of God's glory. It's one of the high points, literally and theologically, of the Old Testament. Um, And here we see something similar happen, but this time it's Jesus' glory that's on display. The brilliant appearance is remarkably similar to the vision of God himself on his throne in Daniel 7-9. Jesus just is brilliant white, you know, whiter than anyone could possibly bleach uh, clothes. He's just radiant. Uh, it's a stunning display. It's like they're, the disciples are staring at the sun itself. And Mark tells us, just like the Israelites in Exodus 24, and as they're encountering God's glory, that they were terrified just by the display of God's brilliance and glory. The author of Hebrews uh, says it this way in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The disciples got to see this glory for themselves up close and personal. And to make things even more remarkable, Moses and Elijah, Old Testament heroes from centuries before, make an appearance. And you ask of all the incredible cast of characters in the Old Testament, why Moses and Elijah? These two figures both foreshadowed the coming Messiah, right? Moses told God's people all the way back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. We're going to see that refrain come up in our text this morning. Listen to him. And the very last few sentences of the Hebrew Old Testament mention both Moses and Elijah as forerunners of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So if you look at Malachi 4, 4 through 6, those last words before we turn the pages to the New Testament, 
we read these words, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. This text is alluding to, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Right? These were the very last words from God in the Old Testament. Here, Jesus is with Moses and Elijah signaling that the great and awesome day of the Lord is imminent. It is at hand, right? These Jewish kids had heard the stories of Moses and Elijah all their lives, but now they're looking awestruck at these living legends here to welcome the long-awaited Messiah. It's hard to conceive what this would have been like uh, for them. The best I could come up with is probably be like the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe coming alive for us today if, if Thor and Captain America and the Hulk just kind of wandered into our gathering and, you know, showed up. We were like, whoa, like all these, these you know, char- mythological characters coming off the, some of the best storytelling of our time. We would be like, that would be the level of shock and awe. I mean, this is the stuff of legends. I mean, Moses parted the Red Sea, right? Elijah called down fire, from heaven, and, and these I'm not saying they're myths and, or legends in the way that you know the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, uh, but just the level of shock and awe to see these two men, whom God had used so powerfully in the history of His people, show up alongside of Jesus, and they're not even the leading characters; they're not even the main attraction. They just show up as forerunners, hype men for Jesus. They're just there to point the disciples in the direction of Jesus. The disciples' response, uh, as you might expect, is somewhere between comical and utterly terrified, right? They're, they're trying to figure out what to do with this vision of Jesus. So let's look at Peter's response in verses 5 through 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good that we are here? It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, right? I mean, the disciples are just shocked. I mean, they are in awe of what is happening to them, right? Jesus is finally being revealed in his glory. Moses and Elijah are with him. And so Peter, <coughs> the precocious one, ventures the suggestion, let's make some tents, right, to welcome these distinguished visitors and the conquering king, the Messiah, who is here. You know, perhaps they can start strategizing for the defeat of Rome, right? This is a shocking, terrifying moment, but this is what they've been waiting for. This is what uh, they have signed up for, right? This is the moment that they're waiting for. Jesus' glory is being displayed. And Peter is like, let's make this permanent. Let's all hang out together to celebrate the coming of the Messiah. And as if the radiant appearance of Jesus and his legendary companions are not enough, God himself adds an additional word of commendation to Jesus here in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. 
And suddenly, looking around them, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Um, these words uh, spoken out of the cloud, out of the glory of God, the majesty of God that has descended on the mountain comes from God himself. Right? The same words Moses told God's people about the coming prophet back in 1815, listen to him. Now they're hearing from the voice of God himself. The same words spoken over Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved son, are being repeated again to the disciples at this decisive turning point in Jesus' ministry. God wants this vision burning in their hearts, these words ringing in their ears as they make their way to Jerusalem and all that awaits them on that journey. They're given a preview of the king and his glory to sustain them under the shadow of the cross. And then this vision totally disappears. It's just this this instant moment, and uh, all of a sudden, they're standing there. All of the glory has fallen away. Moses and Elijah are gone, and there they are sitting with Jesus. (laughs) After this event, the disciples will never look at Jesus the same again. He is no longer just their rabbi or teacher He is something else altogether. And I think we could pause for a moment just to consider this beautiful, majestic picture of Jesus. It's fashionable in our day and age, of course, to stylize Jesus as a great teacher, you know, a prophet, you know, uh, an inspiring guy to go along with Gandhi or, you know, some of the other wonderful religious teachers in the world that have had wonderful things to say, uh, the Buddha. But that's not something we can do after a story like this. That's not something Jesus will allow us to do. I often quote, and I'll do it again for your benefit because it's one of my favorite quotes. I'll give you a little quote by C.S. Lewis. <coughs> drives this home. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. That is this one sort of thing one must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him or it's a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we've looked at this preview of Jesus' glory, and then Jesus' disciples are all alone together. We don't have to imagine the questions they have because Mark tells us as they begin to question what just happened. And Jesus has his own instructions to add. And so in verses 9 through 11, we get a preview of Jesus' Resurrection. Uh, notice what Jesus comes up, goes on to say. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Right? Last week, Sebastian showed us the first reference to Jesus' resurrection, Mark's gospel, back in 831. Uh, Jesus told his disciples on the third day he would rise Again, but for Peter, the reality of the resurrection was totally swallowed up by the prospect of suffering, rejection, and death. It didn't even seem to register at all. Since the disciples missed it the first time, Jesus 
reintroduces here at this pivotal, reintroduces the resurrection at this pivotal moment in his ministry. He charges them to secrecy until he rises from the dead. And just as they wrestled with what Jesus meant by his suffering, rejection, and death, this time they puzzled over what on earth could he mean with this rising from the dead, right? Just like they didn't have a category for a dying Messiah, they definitely didn't have a category for a rising Messiah, right? They had a theology that promised resurrection for the righteous at the end of the age, but not in the middle of history, right? And certainly not for one person. This was absolutely um, unprecedented. And I actually find this to be uh, somewhat comforting, I think, for us today, right? They were just as confused by talk of resurrection as we are today. We don't believe that people just rise from the dead uh, left and right, right? They were confronted by death all the time with its awful finality. The mortality rates in the first century were absolutely appalling. Nobody cheated death. Even after seeing Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, they still struggled to believe it, that Jesus could be, uh, could rise from the dead, that Jesus could be the resurrection and the life. Uh, Tim Keller concludes uh, this way. He said, the full meaning of this episode would only be apparent after the resurrection because the transfiguration is a glimpse, a preview of the resurrection and the second coming, Jesus Return to restore the world at the end of time, prophesied in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. Also, until the resurrection, who in the world would actually believe it? So Jesus has revealed his glory and foretold his resurrection. Finally, the disciples consider one final puzzle in verses 11 through 13. And they asked him, why did the scribes say, Elijah must come, that first Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So we turn uh, finally after a preview of Jesus' glory, a preview of Jesus' resurrection, to a preview of Jesus' suffering. After seeing Elijah in person, they want to know why the scribes say Elijah must come first before the Messiah. They're missing a crucial piece of the puzzle. Did, did they miss Elijah's coming? What, what, what's going on here? Where, where is Elijah's famous appearance signaling the day of the Lord? And Jesus answers their question, and then some. He gives them a lot to chew on here in these few Verses. He confirms that Elijah does come first in fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which we read. But then he adds an unexpected twist. Elijah does come first, and the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Elijah's coming signals the long-awaited day of the Lord, but it also signals the coming of the suffering servant in Elijah, in Isaiah 53. Elijah prepares the way for the Messiah's suffering and glory, right? The disciples thought Elijah's coming signaled the end of all of their suffering, right? The end of the world as they knew it. But Jesus shocks them by saying Elijah has come and that they have arrested and executed him because John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. We see this in Matthew eleven ten explicitly that John the Baptist is the Elijah figure. He's the one coming to prepare the day of the Lord. And now that Elijah has come, 
been executed. The only thing for Jesus left for Jesus is to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. Probably all of these references go right over to the disciples' heads. Right? They are still in shock and awe from Jesus' glory, the appearance of these legendary heroes. It wasn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection that all these Old Testament prophecies started to come into focus for them. At the moment, they were too close to all the events to be able to step back and see the big picture as Jesus saw it. All this should remind us that we can't rightly understand Jesus' teaching, his miracles, his identity, his ministry, and his mission apart from the central realities of his death and resurrection. These events make sense of everything else. So we weren't on the mountain. We didn't get to see this dramatic revelation of Jesus' glory. So how do we see Jesus' glory today in ways that will sustain our own discipleship journey? I want to suggest uh, two things here, two things we might uh, grab our affections as we look to see uh, Jesus the glory. The first way we see Jesus' glory is through the cross, right? In hindsight, we get to look back on what Jesus has done, what horrified Jesus' disciples, right? The prospect of the cross, this gruesome tool of Roman execution has become for us a symbol of redemption, rescue, and, re- and restoration. It has become the greatest display of sacrificial love in history, right? Jesus gives himself in exchange for us. It's the great model that we're to emulate. It's the great display of love. Uh, The cross becomes a source of our glory. What was a symbol of shame and, uh, and death is now for us, the very thing that offers us life. Uh, Sebastian talked about how Paul was one of the, one of the greatest got a greatest glimpse of the cross, a man who understood the beauty, the glory, the passion of the cross. He says this in Galatians 6.14, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Not only is Paul not ashamed of the cross, he is boasting in the cross because he knows through through the cross, grace has been extended to him. Forgiveness, mercy, pardon, Uh, second chances, all of the beauty that flows out of the cross comes to us because Jesus was willing to lay down his life in exchange for ours. When it comes to seeing Jesus' glory, nothing was more thrilling to the Apostle Paul than seeing the extent of Jesus' love for us on the cross. And so we can look back at the cross to see Jesus' glory and reflect on it, but we also see it through his resurrection, right? Jesus didn't stay dead. After his resurrection, he spent 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. He then ascended to his heavenly throne from which he sent his spirit at Pentecost so that the good news of the kingdom could advance with power so that his kingdom could be launched in this world. And we can trace that advance of the kingdom, the spread of the gospel over the last 2,000 years and see the impact it has made all over the world. We can see its impact in our own lives. We could see it in the lives of our friends and family, see Jesus still alive, still at work, still building his kingdom today, still advancing that beautiful 
gospel message. If we have eyes to see, right, we can see the risen Christ at work in our lives. We could see many previews, many snapshots of the glory of God, of the work of his kingdom in the lives of people that we know, in stories we see of the gospel breaking out in new ways in different places around the world, in the, the powerful work of God <clears throat> moving forward. All previews of a coming kingdom, the ways you've seen God at work in your life, uh, the ways that you've seen God at work throughout the course of Christian history, and of course, as we continue to look forward, see what God is going to do and anticipate what he's going to do here in this new year and do around the world as the gospel continues to advance on its course uh, so that every nation, every language, every tongue, uh, every would have a witness to Jesus Christ all around the world. And that gospel has spread in absolutely remarkable ways from those early ragtag band of disciples to this massive global phenomenon that it is today. And those are just previews, right, of the glory that is ultimately uh, going to come. I wanted to close uh, with another uh, C.S. Lewis quote here. I thought it brings us uh, full circle in the sermon. This one from The Weight of Glory Um, Lewis talks about this desire we all have, right? We all have this longing for glory to see and be a part of something that this longing that we all have. And and he he tries to put that into words for us this morning, uh, the capture of the kind of glory that we're longing for, that the transfiguration teases for us and that we all long to be a part of. He says this, the sense that in this universe we're treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. I love that language. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deepest <coughs> desire. <clears throat> Sorry. For glory means good rapport with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcomed into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have been, <clears throat> which we have been always seen from the outside is no neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. And that is the prospect. That is the, that is the very thing that transfiguration teases for us today. All the, the leaves of this New Testament are rustling with the rumor that one day we're going to get in, we're going to experience and see Jesus' glory face to face in a new heavens and a new earth, a world completely restored and renewed and remade. And right now, we have little glimpses, little, little previews in our lives and our relationships as we see Jesus building his kingdom, Jesus continuing to move forward and advance the gospel, Jesus continuing to spread this good news of the kingdom. And we want to be a church that is a preview of those coming attractions, right? We want to be a church where the kingdom of God is moving forward, a church where the gospel is being preached, where people's lives are being changed and uh, people are getting a little preview, just a little glimpse of this beautiful kingdom that is breaking through. Would you join me as we pray for that to happen even in this uh, new year?
Father, we thank you for just this little glimpse, this little preview of the glory that we have here in the transfiguration. God, and though we have not personally been able to witness your glory on this high mountain, uh, Father, we do stand on the other side of the twin realities of your death, your resurrection. The disciples would have been absolutely stunned and flabbergasted to see this gospel of the kingdom spread as it has from this little fringe movement uh, with a bunch of Galilean fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, this ragtag band of disciples uh, gathered on the periphery of the Roman Empire now spread throughout the globe. Uh, See that gospel moving to the uttermost ends of the earth, being translated into countless languages, uh, reaching every language and people and tongue. And so, Father, we want to be a part of that movement. We want to be a part of that work. We want to see you continuing to move today in our midst. We want to be a part of what the risen Christ is doing in building his kingdom. And so would you help our church to be a part of that beautiful work? God, we want to see little previews in our church life as people are baptized, as lives are transformed. Uh, God, as new ministries are set afoot here in our city and around the world, God, would we be a beautiful preview of that great day that it's coming? And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Each week here at Redemption City Church, 